always one of my favorite um, settings because we have this mix of practicing journalists and people with insight into the industry, but also people from various academic backgrounds. Um, and what I'm going to do today um, is to try to offer, if you will, a bird's eye view of what's going on uh, with the media, and in particular the kinds of media that sustain journalism and support journalism um, in the world uh, today. Um, for those of you who are interested in these matters, it's clear that there's a lot of stuff going on and also that we can follow these things almost real time as these discussions play out every day. There'll be a new story spiking on Twitter on response to the sign or the importance of mobile or other issues, new stories about new business models and new business ideas or old organizations in crisis. Um, I'm not going to sort of dwell on those details today. The idea is to try to step a little bit back from the churn of everyday events and try to provide a, a more a broader view, if you will, of some of the fundamental changes going on or underway in our media environment today and what that means for journalism uh, and its role in society. Obviously, providing such a big picture comes with uh, a lot of limitations. It's in that every uh, country, in a way, uh, has its own story. Every community will have its own story. Every context is different. Every organization will face their own distinct challenges, but there are some commonalities um, that we should keep in mind, both in terms of the starting points and, and where these things are heading around the world. So a couple of things just to establish, if you will, to help explain the structure of this presentation. We should keep in mind that for all the talk of digital and of startups, it is still the case throughout the world, also in countries with very highly developed digital infrastructures, that quote-unquote old media or legacy media, media that were established well before the advent of digital, produce uh, uh, the most journalism, employ the most journalists, and are used as sources of news by uh, more people, far more people than any uh, online-only provider. Now, of course, people increasingly access this information through various uh, digital channels, uh, through search, through social, uh, and or by going directly to the websites of these organizations, but it's important to start from that, that legacy media are still at the heart of what journalism is and the way in which it functions in society and also the organizations that sustain journalistic work. Obviously they are under a lot of pressure and I will talk about some of the different aspects of that pressure today uh, and where we are heading. So what I'm going to do is to identify what I think are the main trends within three areas that are all together shape the environment that we live in and the preconditions for journalistic work. I'm going to talk about media use and I think it's important to start with media use because one of the central things going on right now is the increasing choice that consumers have, not unlimited, not one that puts them in control, but definitely a move from a low choice to a high choice environment. I'm going to talk about developments in the market, the business of journalism, if you will, what are some, what are some of the central transformations underway. Um, and I'm going to talk about media policy because though the industry will play cute with this sometimes and, and, and frame this in different ways, we do live in, in, in a world where the media business is profoundly shaped by political decisions, and most visibly in decisions like decisions to uh, have license fee funded public service broadcasting in, in parts of the Western world, but also in other ways, uh, indirect subsidies for news production and a variety of rules and regulations that underpin facilitating sometimes constrained journalistic work, Freedom of Information Act, for example. I'm just going to talk about policy um, towards the end. So what's going on in each uh, of these three uh, areas? I'm going to start with uh, media use to put us as, as media users at the center of things. The first thing to say about media use is that some of us live in the future. Um, it's a, it seems like a sort of a banal observation probably to most of us in this room, but it is worth keeping in mind just how dramatic the development has been. 
um, from a situation where I, without wanting to sound like I come from the dark Middle Ages, though my students sometimes feel that, grew up in an environment in which there was one television channel in Denmark. That was it, one. Multi-channel television meant spillover from Sweden or from Germany. That was it. To a situation in which most of us have in our pocket a device that some people like to say give us access to more information than Bill Clinton had access to uh, in the White House. So the, the transformation here is, um, is profound. It's one that was uh, unimaginable for most mo uh, ordinary people um, well into the early noughts. And it's been rapid. I mean, uh, not overnight, but it is rapid, even also by historical uh, standards, a very dramatic development. It's also a development that's been perhaps, at least so far, slightly less profound than some would suggest. So I like to say that the future we live in is sort of a retrofitted future. Um, for people who are film uh, connoisseurs um, of sci-fi in particular, I would say it's the Blade Runner version of the future. Not the, sort of the, not the kind of sci-fi that posits a radical break with the past, like Star Wars. Now, I know that Star Wars is supposed to take place far, far away a long time ago, but it is sci-fi, right? Blade Runner is a retrofitted future in which we still have the remnants of an industrial civilization with its buildings, organizations, brands, ways of doing things that are leftovers from an earlier age, but are still very much integral to the way in which we live our lives and the organizations that we depend on. I'm going to give you just one example, if you will, of this, which is now it's the, the survey data is a couple of years old because we've changed the phrasing of the question, but it's, a, it's an illustration of this. If you think about one of the devices that's emblematic of the change in the way in which we interact with media, it's one that several of you have in front of you. It's the tablet, right? Um, which is one of these digital devices uh, that are everywhere now increasingly. I'm going to just show you some interesting numbers on, on, from the UK from 2012 about how uh, people in the UK who have tablets report that they engage with news or find news. So remember, all the respondents here have tablets. How do they uh, follow uh, news or how do they access news in the, in the last month? Well, a lot of them use desktop internet, right? 84%. Almost as many report using television. That's retro. Two-thirds of the ones who have tablets report using tablets for accessing news. Interestingly, almost as many of those who have tablets report using print newspapers. Now, this is not exactly what we were led to believe would happen with the rise of, um, of news technologies, and fewer report using mobile. This has probably changed quite a bit. Mobile this is one of the big drivers of transformation right now, and one of the things that changed most rapidly. But just to give you an indication, if you will, of how even people who are early adopters, this was a, a sort of a sign of early adopter behavior two years ago, are still mixing and matching their own personal media repertoires in ways that transcend sort of easy distinctions between old media and new media. And I think most of us in this room can recognize that from our own life, we still have ways in which we rely on print and broadcasts. And if you did a little diary, you might actually find that you use far more time with those media than, than you think you do terms of their, their relative importance in your everyday life. The final thing I want to say about media use um, is that the future is not evenly distributed. Again, it might seem like a sort of a low-hanging fruit, um, but it's an important one, and it's important to keep in mind as we think about where we are heading um, that the inequalities of access uh, that we that, that some thought would, would disappear quite rapidly have not um, had not been overcome, if you will, so quickly as, as some had hoped. 
Uh, just an indication, this is based on World Bank data, of the number of, of the percentage of the population reported to be incident users in three different Western democracies, three different high-income countries over the last 13 years. And it's clear that in, in very wealthy and egalitarian societies, we are moving towards a situation in which most of the population, particularly the ones that are not over the 60 plus uh, cohorts, by now are incident users. But it's also clear that in other countries, including ones that were early leaders, like the US, the development has been much more uneven, and in particular in countries like Italy, also much of Southern Europe more broadly, uh, still we have more than a third of the population uh, not being regular incident users. And this is just in terms of reported usage. Uh, the digital divide goes far beyond that. There are divides in forms of use, right, or forms of access. So the question of whether you have broadband access or not, whether you rely primarily on mobile, or whether you also have a desktop, which is necessary for many kinds of interaction with government, for example, much easier in terms of online banking and the like. Um, and of course, web use skills, in which more and more sociological research document that we should be very careful before assuming that so-called digital natives or anyone else for that matter, actually understands what is going on when we use the internet. I mean, how many people in this room really understand just the basic mechanics of how, for example, Google search algorithm works? Why do we get the results that we get? Why do we see the kinds of things in our Facebook newsfeed that we do? Uh, those basic forms of media literacy are not nearly as developed as some would think, not even amongst the generations who have grown up and are very comfortable with the interface of digital technology who can use a touch screen fluently even those young people do not necessarily understand uh, the dynamics of the media that they rely on. Those were three points, if you will, about some parallel trends in terms of media use. Um, I'm going to turn next to the question of media markets, which is uh, one I think will be of great concern, at least to the journalists in the room who work for private uh, news media companies. The first one is that um, though digital has been a Substantial disruption of the media business. So far, actually, recessions have hurt many legacy media more than the change towards digital. This is particularly true in television, where the recession from 2007 onwards was a hard hit for the industry, but where the industry has recovered um, to some extent in countries where growth has picked up again. Um, it is to some extent even true for newspapers, where in some countries like Germany, for example, only really in the last couple of years have we started to see the structural decline of newspaper revenues, whereas the recessions in Germany in the early noughts, and again after the 2007 uh, crisis, the, the, the cyclical downturns of the economy uh, had a much more immediate and, and direct impact on the revenues of the industry. So actually, um, we are not nearly as far along, if, if you will, in the business transformation as one might imagine if one is looking simply at use. Now, of course, it is the case that in particular the print newspaper industry has felt structural transformation more keenly than, for example, television. So classified advertising is the key example of this, which in particular in the US, but also in other countries, was a key source of income, very profitable category of advertising, which moved almost wholesale online um, to sites like monster.com or, or other Craigslist or other um, websites, and have uh, left newspapers without a large part of their revenue, um, which is very hard for local newspapers in particular, uh, which were very reliant on this. So newspapers have faced large structural pressures in addition to the cyclical ones. But television, for example, not really, actually. And this is only beginning to happen now, both in terms of advertising, also seeping now from TV towards digital, but also in terms of viewing habits. So until a year or two ago, actually, internet protocol television, IPTV, so on-demand things like the BBC iPlayer, was a very small part of overall 
viewing of audiovisual content. Last year in Denmark is the first time we reached 10% of total viewing time, being based on uh, IPTV type forms of viewing, whereas linear scheduled television remain to uh, continue to account for the vast majority of viewing. But this is beginning to change. Television is next, and television has to face a future in which uh, these screens um, will not be second screens anymore, but, but primary screens for, for many purposes. And that is a serious challenge facing that industry in the future, which so far stood up well in the face of the rise of the internet. Just to give you a few, a few indications of, of, of how, um, how considerable the, these changes are, just even in the relatively near future. First, a point about um, advertising. So, you know, we live in the wake of a financial crisis that has challenged many sort of conventional assumptions in economics, so we shouldn't assume equilibrium models. But in advertising, uh, it's often sort of a rule of thumb that since advertising is essentially about buying attention, in the long run, we should expect an equilibrium in advertising markets where the percentage of advertising spent on a particular platform corresponds roughly to the amount of time we as media users spend with that platform. So since advertisers buy attention, there should be some relationship between advertising expenditure and attention. How does that look today? Um, well, this is the way it looked in the US last year. The blue uh, columns uh, the percentage of total time spent with media that Americans on average spend with these different platforms. So obviously this decision is artificial. This is the desktop internet, so to speak, and this is mobile internet, uh, excluding uh, gaming. The red one indicates the amount of advertising spent on these different platforms. And this, if you will, is the chart from Hill, if you work in a newspaper. Because this chart suggests that actually, it, things may have been tough for newspapers recently, but actually they still draw almost four times as much advertising as their share of attention merit. And television is beginning to feel the pinch as well. Till recently, uh, the share of time spent was very close to the time of the advertising spend, but now TV is gradually eroding. And of course, this is where the growth is, though internet is catching up, desktop internet is catching up, and mobile is where the real growth potential is. So this just suggests, if you will, that advertisers are actually behind consumers in terms of their allocation of advertising budgets. And there is much catching up to come, which is a very serious challenge in the medium term for print in particular, but also increasingly for TV. And the growth is going to be internet and mobile. And these are areas where um, two companies alone account for between 40 and 50% of advertising, namely Google and Facebook. And every other advertising supported media company in the world will have to compete for the remaining 50%. So, so this is an incredibly competitive marketplace, and one in which content producers will have their work cut out for them. I'll give you two examples of how some specific content producers are doing in this environment today. And um, they are not randomly chosen. They are very high profile news organizations that are considered very successful in the industry. They are two of my favorite newspapers. One that I know that James also likes a great deal. It's the Daily Mail, uh, a favorite of yours. Uh, the other one is the New York Times. So the Daily Mail is the most widely visited English language news website in the world. Sorry, is, is it news? Newspaper <laughs> website. <laughs> sorry. Uh, you, you, uh, you, you betray your class prejudices. Um, and the New York Times uh, is uh, outside the world of financial newspapers, like the Wall Street Journal and Financial Times, is the most successful general interest newspaper in terms of generating digital subscriptions. And of course, one of the most prestigious uh, newspapers in the world. How are they doing in terms of revenue? 
Um, this is from 2013. I've taken the liberty of converting into US dollars for comparison. These are the revenues last year from the Daily Mail and the New York Times from the print product. Uh, print sales account by now for a majority of revenues in both cases and advertising on top of this. The Daily Mail uh, has 4 million readers, about 4 million readers a day for the print product, and the New York Times has about 1.5 million readers, so you can already there see that these are more valuable from an advertising point of view and also in terms of what they're willing to pay for the product. Um, of course, online, both of these organizations reach far larger audiences than that. So the Daily Mail has an estimated 10 million uh, users on an average weekday and 150 million in a month. And the New York Times, about 7 million users on an average weekday of their digital um, offerings. Uh, I forget the, the monthly uh, number of uniques. What does that look like in terms of revenue, though, those, those far larger audiences? Well, like this. Digital advertising in the Daily Mail. Uh, amounts to about 60 million US dollars, uh, 40, 40 million uh, uh, British pounds, on a larger, far larger audience than the print newspaper. At the New York Times, somewhat more than that, uh, but still, uh, even in the case of the New York Times, which by now has more digital subscribers than it has print subscribers, uh, digital accounts for 21% uh, for of revenues. Uh, those of you who have any insights into the economics of your own media organization, if you work for newspapers, will know that a lot of people will be very jealous of this figure, and a lot of newspapers are much closer to this figure, even if uh, the actual numbers are far smaller than the Daily Mail. And these are two of the most successful newspapers in terms of their digital operation. So you can start thinking about what this looks like if you are not a globally recognized brand that can sell subscriptions around the world, or if you are not the purveyor of, shall we say, intriguing stories of global appeal that can draw visitors to your, your freely accessible uh, website from all over the world, um, in addition from your own market. And you can start thinking about the implication of this, not only for uh, leading brands in smaller national markets, but also, of course, what this looks like if you are a regional newspaper or a local newspaper. These, this are very, these are very challenging environments in which to do business. The last thing I want to say about media markets is that um, it's not that things are going poorly in the industry overall. Actually, media spend is increasing, both at the consumer level, um, advertising, broadly speaking, stable, though just being displaced, and of course, our expending, uh, expenditure on hardware and on uh, kind of connectivity are up. Pay television, too. Uh, very high growth uh, levels over the last uh, 10, 15 years. But the link with news is broken. And what I mean by that is that, broadly speaking, um, in the newspaper industry, if things went well for the industry, things also went well for the newsroom. A relatively large proportion of the revenues of newspapers are invested in content production. Not so with television, uh, where it's much less is invested in content production, and where the emphasis is much, to a much larger extent is on entertainment and sports rights, um, and even less so with digital. So for example, in the United States, uh, newspapers still account for more than 60% of all the journalists employed. Television, about 20%. And the category of information providers, which include both digital giants like Google and Facebook, uh, but also information service providers like Bloomberg and Thomson Reuters, account for less than 10% of all journalists employed. And the revenues are growing in those industries that employ few journalists and declining in the ones, or the one, that employ a lot of journalists. So it's not that the media business is in crisis. Actually, many parts of the media business have been doing quite well. Is that a particular aspect of it and a link, an institutional link that has existed historically, is being torn asunder. One way in which such market failures uh, have been addressed in some countries is through 
political intervention. So let's turn to the last area I'll speak about, which is media policy. Very broadly speaking, sort of information society programs, media policy has been very high priority in almost every country in the world in the recent past. Literally billions are invested in broadband rollout, media literacy programs, training of computer scientists, uh, attempts to induce more school kids to be interested in programming. This is a big deal. It's been a major, major issue for the European Commission, for the US government, uh, for state governments, uh, and, and national governments around Europe and elsewhere. Um, but if we look more closely at the particular aspects of media policy that has to do with journalism, uh, it is not clear um, that it has been a particularly uh, high on the agenda of, uh, of top politicians and senior decision makers. So to give you just one indication of that is, broadly speaking, if we think about the forms of direct and indirect support that have been offered in high-income democracies for journalism and public interest in public service media, today, well into the 21st century, they're broadly speaking the same that they were in the 90s. This is a review we produced uh, here at the Reuters Institute in terms of the main forms of intervention, calculated as per capita to facilitate comparison across these very different countries. And these are instantly recognizable and would have been instantly recognizable for anyone from the 90s. Public service media is a big deal in the Scandinavian countries and parts of continental Europe uh, and the UK, slightly less so in, in Mediterranean Europe. Indirect support for newspapers, primarily through VAT exemptions and various forms of distribution subsidies or post privileges. Uh, very valuable, but obviously these are kind of a cyclical forms of subsidy because they depend on the businesses actually generating revenue. If you don't sell any newspapers, you're not going to benefit very much from VAT exemption. If you don't sell any newspapers, you're not going to benefit very much from distribution subsidies. Um, so these are have been very important, but are ill-suited, if you will, for a changing environment. Direct press support, a lot of Americans like to imagine that all European newspapers essentially are on the dole. Uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Some in France and Italy get about 10% of their revenues uh, from <coughs> state subsidies, but, but very few titles are, are heavily dependent on them. And actually, these are a small and declining part of uh, media subsidies in most countries, also because of budgetary pressures and austerity policies in many of these governments that they've been cut in France and in Italy too. And finally, other forms of support, which in Italy is support for local and regional broadcasting. There's a little bit of that. And in France, so little that I couldn't even put a finger on it. A little bit of support for online only journals, 20 million euros a year. Uh, not much compared to what goes to public service broadcasting or to indirect and direct subsidies for the press. So the point is being that these, subs these subsidy policies have not been reformed. We have 20th century forms of media policy for a 21st century environment when it comes to support for news media and journalism in particular. Finally, of course, there are many other areas of policy that are relevant for the media, and they, they too, if you will, uh, are um, have not been revisited, perhaps to the extent that one could imagine they, they would have been or could or could or should have been in a in a period of dramatic change. So think of things like the possibility of nonprofit ownership, uh, of philanthropic donations for uh, journalistic purposes, uh, things like Freedom of Information Act and access to, to public documents. Um, there are a whole range of different policies that that hugely impact the ability of journalists and news organizations to cover the news that, if you will, have um, not been revisited or reviewed systematically to take into account the changes that have been happening more broadly in our media uh, environment or the difficulties that organizationally diminished news organizations have in, in covering the news. Actually, one could say that in some countries, the development has made it only harder for journalists 
uh, Len Downey, the former executive editor of the Washington Post, has uh, dramatically talked about a war on journalism in the United States, for example, uh, in terms of the federal government under the Obama administration, and previously the, the Bush, uh, W. Bush administration, making it much harder for investigative journalists to, to cover um, what's going on in, in the US. Finally, um, I want to talk about what it uh, all means. Uh, the first and I think most important thing to keep in mind is that no matter how dramatic the change has been in the last 10, 15 years, and those of you who've lived through it as journalists will, will know this at a much more immediate and personal level than even those of us who as consumers enjoy the benefits of this new media environment, uh, that no matter how dramatic those changes have been, we are only at the very beginning of a longer period of change. So it's not the case that there is some sort of critical juncture that has been passed and we are now in a digital media age. No. That's why I call this presentation the unfinished media revolution in that both when we look at media use where there are huge generational differences and the real transformation in terms of how we use media and consequently how uh, the media business functions is only going to come with generational replacement. When, when the people who have grown up with digital represent the majority of the population rather than a minority of the population. So media use is going to change dramatically through generational replacement. Uh, the media business will change dramatically as advertisers catch up with consumers who so far are ahead of them. When legacy media organizations lose the ability to subsidize their digital operations off the back of their legacy revenues, so remember those figures from the Daily Mail and the New York Times. The reason that the New York Times can have 1,100 journalists working in the newsroom is that they make a lot of money off print, primarily by selling debt trees to people in Manhattan. I mean, that is, that is still the core of their business. The Daily Mail, too. The Daily Mail makes far, far more money from selling newspapers to people in Britain than they do from the most popular English-language newspaper website in the world. That's going to change. And their ability to subsidize the production of the content that generates or enable their digital success is going to be much reduced as their print business continues to decline. So this is an unfinished revolution. Let's not even talk about policy, where we can at least theoretically imagine that policy frameworks will be reformed to take into account that our media environment has changed. That too, if you will, is an unfinished revolution. What does it mean for journalism and for, for us as citizens who are relying in part on journalism for making invisible worlds visible, as Walter Lippmann put it. Well, um, at least in the world of high-income democracies, I would say that the, the direction we're going on is one in which you get more media. Brands have their own media, Red Bull, for example, football teams. More communication, investments in PR that John will talk about next week. Uh, government uh, as well, government strategic communication. Uh, the ability to connect directly with politicians via various forms of digital media. And less news. At least if by news one means professionally reported, journalistically produced news. So there will be active journalism, yes. Various forms of content production, collaboration, citizen journalism, and so on and so forth. There will also be a lot of rehashing, aggregation, repurposing, and reproduction of things, journalism, if you will. But if one means by news, professionally produced, reported journalism, the institutional underpinnings of that are eroding. And there is nothing in the current trends that suggests that erosion is going to change anytime soon. It's slightly different in emerging economies. So uh, countries like Brazil and India, where you have considerable, or have had at least considerable economic growth and an emerging middle class, where uh, access to always on broadband and mobile devices is not quite the same as in the West, there is at least a medium-term prospect of 
more media and more communication, as with the rest of the, the high-income democracies, but also more news, as there is real growth in the business models there, uh, like newspapers that underpin uh, news production. So it's not that this is a global, if you will, decline of the press as an institution, actually very much. There is growth in a number of countries. But in the high-income democracies, this is a very challenging um, environment, and one in which um, journalists uh, who will in their work, as much as in the dissemination of their work, will see the benefits of these amazing technologies that were unimaginable 10, 15, 20 years ago for most of us, and make, um, and make fact finding and reporting and contextualizing one's work and sharing it and debating it with other people, building a community around it, much easier than it ever was. All those amazing tools that enrich journalism and makes the best journalism so much better are also part of a transformation that is eroding the institutional support that we have had in the 20th century for professional journalism in the Western world. So we have a world in which, you know, I'm not going to parrot the Dickensian of the best of times and the worst of times, a time in which journalism is immensely empowered by new technologies that at the very same time are also challenging, if you will, the organizational uh, preconditions of journalistic work. And one in which journalists, the ones who continue to work as journalists, even in this changing media environment, even as some of their colleagues will have to find other things to do, uh, we'll have to contend with one, if you will, the biggest takeaway, the one thing I want to leave you with before we open up for discussion, um, questions, comments, um, and, and challenges, is that the undercurrent of all of this, if you will, is where I started. It's a change that we experience as media users when we think about this not as journalists or as people running media organizations or as scholars trying to understand that, but when we think about ourselves as media users and the world in which we live, a world in which the choices we are presented with are on order of magnitude bigger than they have been any time in the past, and where the competition for our attention has intensified dramatically on all the platforms that we use, but more than anything on the platforms that are connected to the internet. As is often the case, uh, scientists have tried to quantify this development, if you will, this intensification of the competition for our attention. Doing this requires heroic assumptions, so we don't need to sort of agree on the details of doing this. But a set of American scientists have tried to calculate the relationship between the supply of mediated content, how much media stuff is available to the average American, and on the other hand, media demand, how much time do the average Americans spend consuming media content, and how has that developed over time. This is a graph that Ross Neumann and his colleagues produced. Dividing supply, media supply, the average American host household with the uh, number of minutes spent consuming media content. Heroic assumptions, but look at it for a minute, if you will. Situation from which a situation development from a situation in which that Ross and his colleagues describe as what they call a human a human scale choice, in which people have about a hundred minutes of, of material competing for every minute of attention. We can make decisions on that scale. With the dramatic development in the 80s of uh, cable and satellite television, multi-channel television, I moved from few channels to hundreds of channels, the number of minutes of attention, uh, sorry, minutes of content available for every minute of attention explodes to a situation in the early noughts where we have almost a thousand minutes of attention, uh, sorry, of content competing for every minute of attention. And one thing you should keep in mind reading this figure is that in this graph, the internet, in its totality, Counts as one option, one minute. So in reality, for those of us who are online, this goes towards infinite. Not quite, but billions of websites. 
Now, we all know we're not going to visit them, but they are there. And there is competition for our attention on a scale that was unimaginable before. And this is something that journalists have to contend with. Why should I pay attention to your content? This is something that media business uh, have to contend with. You know, why should I pay for your content when I have so much to choose from? Why should I grant you my time that you in turn can sell to advertisers, my data for that matter? This is something media policymakers have to contend with. If you believe in public service broadcasting, for example, how do you actually assemble a public in an environment in which people have so much to choose from? So this is what I will leave you with, if you will, as the struggle for our attention uh, has intensified. I have now laid claim to about half an hour of your attention, um, and we will see where, uh, where you take it when we open up for questions and discussions. So thank you very much for your time. <laughs>